House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm your host, Alan Warren. And joining me as a co-host today, we've got Mr. Brian Turnoff. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a while. You've been uh, laid up with your back, eh? Yeah, just got yeah, a sprained back and just, you know, the first sign of, of getting old. So here here I am, but recouped and, and ready to go, ready ready to talk tonight for sure with everybody. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, did you have a back brace on? Wheelchair. No, no back brace, just a, a little uh, lidocaine patch and some painkillers, and uh, and uh, a couple weeks later, you know, here I am. So. All, all ready to go, yeah. And a couple other, uh, you know, medication that I can't talk about on the air. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You never know what state you'll be in and get arrested. <laughs> well, now today we are covering a true crime story, and we have a true crime author. And uh, first time on the show. Um, the book we are talking about will be The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. And our guest is that author, uh, Dean Job. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, Dean, um, before we cut into the story, let's kind of get a little bit about you. What got you into writing true crime? I was a journalist for uh, about two decades, uh, a reporter and editor. Um, my first uh, assignment uh, as a reporter was the court beat. So I was covering trials, but uh, my undergraduate degree had been in history. So um, the two interests came together. I started researching true crime cases from the past uh, here in uh, Nova Scotia and then more broadly. And... Uh, that's where I got the bug. So it's been about three decades I've been off and on writing true crime, and I just find it such a uh, a, a vivid and, and uh, engaging uh, window into the past. Um, the true crime cases, by their nature, uh, there's drama, there's, uh, there's mystery, and uh, also you have to understand the context. In this case, Victorian society, I've also written about the Jazz Age. Um, they're really uh, great entry points into vivid, engaging, and illuminating history. You know, I, I, I see that as the Victorian era. So that in itself takes a lot of research as well. I mean, because you have to write the book in a way that people um, feel like it's got real um, you know, real parts to it, like the conversations, the way people dress, act, and what they did. It's quite a bit different than today. Well, it, it just takes meticulous research. Um, and I, I, I think as a writer, it's really important to, to get those facts absolutely correct uh, for the reader. Um, my second career, I guess, if you will, has been as, a, as an academic and uh, teaching journalism and, and now uh, teaching in a graduate program in uh, creative nonfiction. And the word creative sometimes gives pause. Uh, does that mean create uh, characters or create dialogue? And the answer is no. It's the storytelling. So it's finding uh, almost novelistic techniques, uh, developing characters, setting scenes, uh, having the action unfold, but 
absolutely grounded in the fact and, and true to the facts of what happened. So um, it's a really important part of what I do is, uh, is uh, I don't just tell you this is set in the Victorian age. I, I hope the readers are transported to the Victorian age and get a feel for it as I've tried to during my research. Yeah, that's pretty. It, it's pretty interesting uh, to get into a, a history like this, even if it is about murder or whatever uh, the case be. Um, how did you find out about this case? Like, what what led you to this particular case? Well, Doctor Cream is one of these. Well, first of all, he's uh, he's almost the perfect villain for the Victorian era, uh, running around in a top hat and a cape. Uh, in the in the sinister fog of of London at the end of his uh, murderous rampage, uh, he uh, he looks like he could be out of a casting agency if he wanted a Victorian villain. Hmm. I discovered him. He's one of these shadowy figures as well in in the literature. When you're looking at uh, when I'm researching old cases or in the Victorian times, like stumble over headlines about him. Uh, but also see accounts of uh, his crimes in anthologies. And I guess but what really made him stand out for me was this idea that how did this figure get away with as many as ten murders in three countries? How was he able to kill time and time again? As I did my research, it became clear that most of the time he was the prime suspect, yet somehow managed for the most part, to escape uh, detection and punishment. Do you think that their investigation was not as thorough, or do you think their skills were not as good? Is that sort of one of the reasons? Part of it, um, he killed, uh, his first murder was in uh, 1877. Um, he was ultimately put in prison for 10 years for one of his killings. This was one in uh, a city of Belvedere in northern Illinois. Uh, only to be freed in 1891, go to London, kill four more, uh, four more women. Um, so there were various policing agencies, various uh, um, uh, court officials, coroners, inquests, trials. So, but what really did link them together was uh, trying for me as a as a researcher and a writer was to understand what was the state of detection, uh, what were uh, the forensic tests available. And, of course, this this is on the edge of the modern or the cusp of the modern era. Uh, forensics are crude. Uh, detection and, uh, and skilled detectives are really just um, coming um, to the fore and are really only found in the larger cities. So Green benefited from some of these gaps. And then there were just at times miscues, miscommunications, missed opportunities, or he simply was able to evade suspicion long enough or arrest long enough to skip down. You know, one of the parallels that I, I took away was that, and what benefited him and, and him being able to get away from the crime was that, you know, if you have money and you have class privilege, that's going to go a long way and be able to get um, away from your crimes. I mean, you talked how he was released from prison. I think that was because his family made some bribes. I mean, what are some of the other comparisons that you would draw to, to today? Well, he was a doctor, and that meant that he was given um, a benefit of the doubt far too many times. He was a professional, um, but most of his victims were patients or he was very closely tied to that made him a leading suspect. But it was hard for the authorities, for other doctors, uh, in many cases, to make that leap that 
this fellow practitioner, this professional, as you said, this man of a of a high stature from a good family could be a killer. Cream used that to his advantage. But it also worked in another way. It brought his victims to him. Uh, Jack the Ripper pops up in my story because Cream killed on either side of Jack the Ripper's rampage in Whitechapel in 1888 in London. Um, and... Um, uh, so his his name pops up, and Jack the Ripper, as you'll know, uh, stopped his victims. Uh, it was a brutal killer who sought out his victims. Cream was a different kind of killer. Cream's victims came to him. Many of them were young women desperate for an illegal abortion. This was a service that Cream was only too happy to provide, and in some cases, um, kill the women who'd come to him and trusted him. To, uh, to help them uh, in this time of need because they weren't married. They had to terminate. They felt they had to terminate their pregnancies. Mm. It's pretty. What kind of doctor was he? he is, one of his specialties was midwifery, and that meant that he had a lot of female patients. Um, at one point, he was making it known that he specialized in diseases of the womb, and uh, this could have been just a clever way of... Uh, or a, a euphemism for a, a illegal abortionist. Um, he had, he certainly was highly trained. He was a graduate of McGill Medical School in Montreal, class of 1876. It was the most prestigious medical school in Canada at the time. He did graduate or post, postgraduate work at St. Thomas's Hospital in, in London and uh, was actually licensed by the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Edinburgh, which was one of the top qualifications in the world at the time. So he had no shortage of skills, um, but it's the way he used those skills. Um, one of his um, profs at uh, one of his professors in medical school uh, urged the students to be godlike in their practice, to come between the living and the dead. I think it's a useful way to think of Cream because he decided he would have a godlike status and play God and ultimately decide which of his patients would live that he'd help and which would die. Um, his method of killing was to lace uh, medicine that he prescribed or provided with uh, uh, deadly strychnine. Mm. Wow. Um did he have a particular person or type of person he wanted to kill, or was it just random? Well, it, random, except that there are people who came to him. Um, it did change when he uh, was released from prison, as was noted, in 1891, and headed to London. Uh, he preyed on, on sex workers at that time uh, and killed four women in uh, the Lambeth neighborhood, became known as the Lambeth Poisoner. Um, so, um, the one commonality is they were, they were women and, uh, they were either women who came to him in desperation for legal abortions early in his career, or they were, he was a customer of sex workers in, uh, in Lambeth and some of them he chose to die. Yeah. I want to talk, touch on his, I get psychopathy for a second because, you know, on one side you can see that he's kind of like a wolf in sheep clothing, wealthy, religious, educated. Um, you take him on that, all that on face value at that time, particularly you're not going to think he's a serial killer um, or a killer at all. But 
I think uh, I'm on the other side of that, where in my opinion that because of the way that he killed, as poison was his main way, um, I think that's cowardly, and that says a lot about who he is. I mean, in your opinion, though, what does his M.O., how he killed the people that he killed, reveal about his psychology? Oh, well, cowardly is a, is a good way to put it. Uh, he doesn't stick around to see what he's done, but his medical training means he knows he's consigning his victims to a horrible death. Strychnine causes a, a, a series of, of horrible seizures. Uh, it's often, uh, it, it looks, it mimics tetanus, which was common at the time. Uh, although uh, it was pretty easy for a skilled medical pr practitioner to tell the difference. But uh, victims would suffer these uh, agonizing seizures, followed by uh, breaks that would be, they would be lucid, but they would know they were dying. Cream uh, knew this was what was going to happen. He knew the effects of strychnine because he learned about poisons like this as part of his medical training. Uh, strychnine in trace amounts was used in, commonly used in medicine at the time. Um, he just chose to, uh, to uh, load medicine with a, a deadly dose of this. So you're right about cowardly, but I, I think it plays into this idea of godlike. I mean, what could be more um, uh, sinister than a murderer who could kill from a distance, who could be long gone from the scene by the time the patient acting on his instructions, took the medicine, took the, the uh, poison medicine he prescribed. Um, so um, it was really part of, uh, of his, um, of his uh, uh, pathology, I guess, or, or his approach to, to do this. And uh, yeah, unlike Jack the Ripper, who was up close and personal, yeah, uh, Thomas Neal Crean um, got some kind of sadistic enjoyment out of just imagining the death throes of his victims. So you think that was kind of part of it? Like he, he did want them to suffer? Oh, yes, or because he, he wouldn't have chosen a, such a deadly poison. And it wasn't because it, there was very rudimentary toxicology and forensics at the time, but strychnine was known, could be, could be detected. There were some early tests to detect it. So it wasn't he was picking this this poison because it would evade uh, uh, suspicion or, or or evade him being caught. Uh, the method he employed, uh, putting it in medicine that would be taken when he was long gone, was uh, the way he evaded being caught and and would be free to kill again. Now, a lot of times, you really get like a window into their mind. Uh, serial killers and, and killers and you know psychopaths. Um, they talk a lot. I mean, what, what did Cream say about Cream? Well, Cream didn't talk a lot. What he did was he wrote a lot. Um, you'll know from the story that uh, ultimately when he's in London, uh, he writes letters, uh, blackmail letters, to uh, the physician of the royal family, a sitting member of parliament, a prominent doctor, and uh, accusing them of his murders using pseudonyms, some of these letters are written in his own handwriting, and that helps catch him. When I, because these letters can be traced back to his hand through his handwriting. But as I did my research, I realized and discovered that this had been part and parcel of his modus operandi all along. Early on, he would write letters accusing others, either so he could evade capture or suspicion. 
that uh, sort of morphed into plots to kill someone and then uh, blackmail or threaten to expose uh, or accuse a pharmacist of making a mistake in the medicine um, to, uh, to actual outright blackmail uh, in London. The odd thing is there's no evidence at any point Cream ever made a dollar from any of these threats. Hmm. What they became was evidence against him but I think they also, you were saying about windows into mind, I think they also suggest a need to gloat or a need to show off, uh, certainly a need to needlessly expose himself to possible detection. Because in one case, I mean, the, the death of one of his patients had been attributed to natural causes. He demanded uh, the body be exhumed and tested for strychnine because he hoped to blackmail the uh, provider of the medicine. That uh, rebounded against him. He ended up on trial for the murder. Wow. You know, during this whole time, did he have a family? Was he married? Um, what was going on in his personal life? His personal life, well, first of all, we, we mentioned about his upbringing. Uh, from a wealthy family, as was noted uh, by Brian, uh, uh, church-going, uh, plenty of money to send him to a uh, prestigious medical school. Uh, he flaunted his wealth, his fine clothes and his jewelry, alienated many of his classmates as results. So you're starting to see a kind of a selfish streak that may support this kind of uh, narcissistic uh, behavior and, uh, and uh, a man really with no, very little conscience. He married in uh, 1876, soon after getting out of, uh, soon after graduating medical school. He married a young woman named Flora Brooks from a small town in Quebec. Um, he married her because he was forced to. Uh, they were engaged. She got pregnant. He performed an abortion that almost killed her. Uh, the result was he was forced to marry her and forced into this marriage. Uh, and it becomes pretty clear from the evidence that within months he was sending her medicine. He'd gone to London for further training, left her in Canada. She took this medicine and admitted as much to her family doctor, but it ultimately killed her. So I think it's pretty clear that was his first victim. Uh, that was the only time he ever married. And uh, But he did have uh, brothers and sisters back in Quebec City who... Uh, uh, of course, uh, became increasingly concerned about his behavior. Um, a few of them visited, or one of his brother did visit him when he was in prison. Um, but when he came back to Quebec City after his release in 1891, uh, his family uh, was very happy to send him to London to uh, to get him out from underfoot because he was he was very erratic and very unstable, and uh, they they felt as if some sort of change of, of scenery would help him. But, of course, they were uh, sending him to London. They, they helped send him to London, where he ultimately killed more people. You know, over the past few decades, as we've studied killers and, and psychopaths, commonalities and patterns have developed. One in particular is that there will be some type of childhood experience or experiences that somewhat you can that indicate of, of who they will become. Were there any, was there anything like that? in his childhood that would tell you he would, might become a serial killer? No, uh, I mean, a few things that stand out. Uh, his, um, his mother died uh, 
when he was 19. He was still at home at this point. He went to medical school when he was in his 20s. And by all accounts, he was profoundly effective. It was a long, lingering death. He was very attentive at her side. But, you know, that at the time in the Victorian era, um, you know, the, the death rate of younger people was higher. So that on its own, uh, I don't think, is, uh, is definitive. Uh, the narcissistic streak, maybe another layer here. Um, being trapped as a young man into a marriage that he then engineered a way to get out of with using poison, perhaps that started fueling what became a very clearly a, uh, a burning hatred of women uh, that uh, manifests itself when he started, because nine of his ten victims, nine of the ten victims I was able to identify are women. And uh, so maybe some some clues there. Hmm. It's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting case. Now, now, without giving away too much, um, did he ever get caught? Well, he ultimately does. And um, I guess there's um, uh, a spoiler alert in the title. <laughs> He's the murderous Dr. Cream. Um, I really, I couldn't conceive of any way to write this other than to make it a how done it, not a who done it. Um, and what I wanted to do um, I, uh, I start the book with his release in 1891 from Joliet Prison after serving 10 years of a life sentence. And as Brian noted, uh, very, very compelling evidence that his family put, over, put up enough money to buy his early release, uh, a bribe or some kind of kickback. Um, start there. And then uh, because I wanted, my central question is in the subtitle, The Hunt For, I wanted to understand how he got away with it for so long and so many times, as I mentioned. So that sets him up for his final four murders in London, his eventual arrest in 1892, and then he goes on trial. But Scotland Yard at that point starts discovering this dark past because he's killed six, as many as six people in Canada and the United States. Um, three women in the Chicago area alone, where he practiced for about two years. So they send Inspector Frederick Jarvis to uh, Canada and the United States to interview witnesses, check court records, verify where he's been, develop as much as they can a profile of the many murders of Thomas Neal Cream. And I thought that was an effective way to... to uh, tell the story. So uh, you go back in time as uh, uh, I reconstruct the Cream's past, but the threads through it are the various discoveries of Inspector Jarvis. So I hope readers will be looking over my shoulder as they read, as they look over the shoulder of Inspector Jarvis and just learn about the uh, uh, the missed opportunities, mistakes, outright uh, 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 in some cases, corruption of the justice system that allowed Cream to uh, kill as many as ten times. Yeah, I see that in the, in the um, forward how you talk about the bungled investigations and the corrupt officials. Um, was that in all three countries? It, it varied. Every murder was distinct. In, in most were strychnine. One was uh, poisoning with chloroform. Uh, one was a uh, 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 a botched operation. 
Um, but uh, the, the actual circumstances varied. Uh, for instance, in London, Ontario, a female patient who he admitted had come to him for an abortion was found dead, chloroform poisoning. And it looked like it had been set up to look like a suicide. Cream was very quickly the prime suspect. But he managed to throw up enough uh, confusion and letter, uh, his first letter accusing someone else of the crime, that the coroner simply, and the coroner's jury simply came with an open verdict by persons unknown. Everybody in the this, this city uh, felt he was guilty, but he was never charged. So no outright corruption there, missed opportunity, maybe a lack of evidence, maybe a lack of vigilance. The, the uh, police force uh, in the city of London, Ontario, was very small at the time and undermanned. He gets to Chicago, there is evidence of outright corruption. In fact, he uh, stands trial in 1880 for murdering uh, a woman in a botched operation. There's compelling evidence against him. Uh, but his father has the money to hire the best lawyer in town, Alfred Trude, who also had a reputation for bribing juries. There's no direct evidence he bribed this jury, uh, but uh, despite the strong evidence, uh, he won an acquittal for Cream. Um, so, and then, of course, in terms of, of official corruption, the uh, the money that clearly changed hands to get him out of prison. Um, and set him up to kill four more times, you know, is another example of just uh, the uh, the flaws and corruption of, this, of the uh, justice system in Illinois at the time. Yeah, I'll leave it to the Americans. <laughs> 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 we have, we have, <laughs> have to be corrupt, you know. Um, well, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Now, do you, do you have a subtext or an idea underneath the main theme or story of the book? Is there something you want people to take away from this book? Well, I think I think of how much or on what level cream is a product of the repression and misogyny and uh, double, uh, double standards of um, the Victorian era. Um, I'd say at one point he's, he's like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde come to life respectable doctor by day, uh, debauched, drunken, uh, 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 reprobate at night uh, in some of the communities he's in. Um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was all about this sort of inner evil, and Cream seems to embody that. Um, the, the idea that women were driven to him that uh, they couldn't dare have a child out of wedlock. They were desperate for abortions. One observer described the idea of a, a woman who was unmarried having a child as a living death. So the stigmatization of women, uh, and when he gets to London, the stigmatization of sex workers who are, who are not seen as very important. And... Uh, you can see in some of the policing records even that uh, the frustration of the police trying to deal with uh, calling the, the women of Lambeth unreliable because they're, they don't seem very helpful with the uh, investigation, but of course overlooking the fact that uh, these, are, uh, these are women who uh, have no interest in dealing with the police and are actually uh, trying their hardest to stay out of the sight of the police. Um, but you do see a lot of uh, some sexism in uh, 
in uh, the way uh, at various stages the courts or the police handle the cases. There, there are a lot of shades of Jack the Ripper and H.H. H. Holmes when you talk about Thomas Cream. Um, so I, I kind of want to uh, talk about those for just to stick with that for a little bit. Uh, one particular, I want to trail back to something that you said earlier in the conversation and you brought up Jack the Ripper and through your research and your book, I mean, you pretty much proved that um, Jack the Ripper, that Thomas Cream, sometimes he's associated with being Jack the Ripper, that there's pretty much no way that he could have been. But I also want to touch on one other part of that is that you know, people think that because um, supposedly his last words as he was being hung was that he was confessing to be Jack the Ripper. But then another cream biographer, I'm sure you've talked, heard about this, is that what he was actually was, when what was happening is that when he was losing control of his bodily functions as he was being hung, he was saying, I'm ejaculating. I mean, that's a pretty big discrepancy between being Jack the Ripper and I'm ejaculating. I mean, where, what are your thoughts on, on that part of his, you know, at the end of his life and Jack the Ripper Association? Well, I, I did see that in the research. And <laughs> first of all, there, there's so many uh, rat holes you're going down to even get there. Uh, <laughs> important, it's important to know that Cream has an ironclad alibi. He was in Joliet Prison in the fall of 1888. Um, he bought his way out in 1891. That's led to speculation. Maybe he bought his way out earlier. Um, well, that doesn't hold up because why would his family spend all that money in 1891? to get him out of prison if he was already out of prison. But beyond that, let's let's unpack this this idea that his last words in the scaffold were, I am Jack the trap sprung uh, for all time. Uh, we're left with the idea that he was about to uh, uh, confess to being Jack the Ripper and possibly something else. Um, that, uh, that uh, there's no mention at all at the time of his execution in 1892, any of this. Um, I was able, through my research, through newspaper databases, which are quite complete for this era, to show that it, about a decade later, in 1902, small newspaper items showed up claiming that the hangman, Billington, had heard these last words. Well, Billington was dead by then, so there was no way to verify it. It got picked up, uh, scattered references, United States and, and in Britain, and then that story died only to be resurrected decades later in features, believe it or not, there was such a thing as features about last words on the scaffold. Well, this is a hard one to resist, and somehow that story uh, was included. But by now, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, taken on the uh, veneer of fact or uh, of truth. And uh, that's really the basis for this idea. Uh, that he could have been Jack the Ripper, and, and nothing more. Uh, as I said, uh, at the time, the press, the police even, referred to the Whitechapel murders, Jack the Ripper. Uh, there was speculation that here was another example of the new kind of monster that Jack the Ripper was, the serial killer in our midst, um, but never a suggestion it could be cream. So I, I'll go with the weight of evidence from the time, and uh, I think today we have a term, fake news, that would apply <laughs> to this rather uh, uh, a fanciful notion that he made this, uh, this uh, uh, a confession. So my position would be, based on the evidence I've seen, it was never made. It's a good story that's, uh, that's been hard to put down. And um, I do find that in recent years... Uh, Cream was, for decades, based on this, this thin reed of imagination. 
was touted as a potential Ripper suspect. There'd be a story on the Ripper crimes and the uh, inevitable sidebar of leading suspects, and he'd be there. That has stopped in recent years, I think, because it's clear he couldn't have done it. Uh, and but I uh, I did a Jack the Ripper tour as part uh, when I was doing my research in London. Sure enough, at the very end, he's trotted out as a potential Ripper suspect. So it's it's a hard myth uh, to uh, to eradicate, and I don't know if my book will do that. But uh, I I think we can be confident that uh, uh, those words were never said, and uh, it's clear that. Uh, as I said, he has an alibi. And, and, and another, uh, uh, Ripperologists, people who study the Ripper murders, have also noted that um, same city, London, same victims, sex workers, but totally different methods. Jack the Ripper slashed with knives. Cream killed from afar with strychnine. So, really, um, basically one conclusion was, well, different man, different method, you know, not this, not the Ripper. Yeah, I don't, after reading the book, I don't know what's more absurd than him saying, you know, as beyond, I am Jack the Jack the Ripper, or I am ejaculating. I mean, either way, it's 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 fairly ridiculous. Uh, but uh, you know, like like I mentioned before, that not only are there shades of Jack the Ripper, but there are also shades of H. H. Holmes, which you mentioned a lot of the commonalities that they do that they have. I mean, why doesn't someone like Doctor, you know, Thomas Cream, who, um. I mean, I, why doesn't someone like him get that same recognition, you know, horrible recognition as Jack the Ripper or H.H. H. Holmes? Well, I mean, first of all, recognition. I mean, we, uh, one of the things I set out to do was to to put names and and uh, and life to the uh, to his victims. Uh, one thing that I found from earlier accounts, I mean, many of his victims, the names were wrong or spelled wrong. Uh, the cities where they lived were wrong. I, I tried to make them people. And my focus on the uh, on the uh, detection and the shortcomings, how he got away with it, um, I think it's important to deflect some of the attention from the killer uh, at all times. But But really... It, it is an important question. Why, why has Green been seemingly forgotten? And I think in the Ripper's case, or compared to the Ripper, it's simply that this endless fascination, almost uh, uh, obsession of so many people with trying to figure out who was it. I mean, to the point of even bringing in Cream, the most unlikely of suspects. Um, and I think that's given his case an afterlife and, a, and an enduring uh, uh, mystery. Uh, the fact that it was unresolved, that uh, has, has meant that even in our own day, he's ubiquitous. Everyone's heard the name. Everyone has some idea about the crimes. H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, uh, again, was, uh, he actually, he, uh, he started his crimes at the, uh, at the World's Columbian Exposition in uh, Chicago in 1893, so he actually postdates Cream. Um, but Holmes uh, was uh, uh, perhaps more, uh, more known and reviled, partly because of his, uh, uh, he wrote a book, and uh, or a book was based on his confessions. He confessed to 27 murders, only to be discovered that some of the people he thought he murdered were still alive. Um, he had uh, at least, uh, there was the image that he was uh, an even more prolific uh, serial killer. But Eric Larson's book, of course, has meant that H.H. H. Holmes is 
uh, will will live in infamy in a way that uh, a similar way, I guess, that Jack the Ripper has. Well, now they're saying Holmes was Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess the job is still open for somebody. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's just it's crazy. Uh, everyone seems to be Jack the Ripper, but. Um, well, it's a really interesting book, and I see that you um, you also uh, write an article as well for a, uh, what is that, the Ellery Queen? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm their uh, true crime columnist, so uh, every other month I, uh, I do a, a short uh, true crime story, uh, uh, France, England, America, Canada, I, uh, just uh, just interesting cases. Often uh, the, time, the column is called Stranger Than Fiction, uh, being fact, um, but also I, I do try to find strange cases, and I alternate that with a, uh, uh, a roundups of uh, recent uh, true crime titles that, that interest me, or uh, uh, so mini reviews of, uh, of uh, sort of the latest in the genre. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I haven't I haven't looked at it yet, but I will. And you're part of the Crime Writers of Canada. That's right, and uh, the Mystery Writers of America, and and actually the uh, Crime Writers Association in uh, in uh, Great Britain. Wow, you get around. <laughs> well, I, I don't travel there, but I belong. <laughs> I'm in the Crime Writers of Canada as well. Uh-huh. I've been there a couple of years, so. Well, they're just great organizations for uh, comparing notes and, and meeting people and, uh, and supporting other writers. Yeah, where to next for you after this? This uh, book is is settled. What what what's your plans next? Well, I, um, I historical nonfiction is 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 my obsession. I guess I, my previous book, Empire of Deception, was about a Chicago swindler who. Uh, out Ponzi, the famous Charles Ponzi. He was running a Ponzi scheme in Chicago for two decades before it had a it had a name, and uh, was running a, a claim to have oil wells in Panama and conned a whole lot of wealthy people in Chicago before he was caught. So I've done a con man, now done a serial killer. I'm now spending some time research wise with a uh, gentleman jewel thief. From the twenties again, from the same era as Empire of Deception, the Roaring Twenties, and it's it's really developing into a, a fascinating look at uh, wealth, excess, and uh, class in uh, in the Roaring Twenties. Uh, it's a fellow who could crash parties in a tuxedo while he cased a joint, so he could come back and steal. Uh, steel jewels later uh, so uh, the Netflix series on Lupin uh, has uh, really uh, caught the imagination of people uh, I, I thought it was so well done and uh, there's sort of a rich cultural vein of this uh, idea of the gentleman thief uh, who uh, is he good is he bad um, but in the end you can't help rooting for him a bit especially when he's stealing insured jewels from people who have too much money. What do you think your biggest challenge is when you, when you cover an older crime case like this? Um, uh, for me, I would imagine um, getting into the head of the killer because it's, it's going to be really hard if you don't have a diary or, or, or anything from that person themselves. Well, that's when you sometimes have to get not creative in terms of the material, but creative in what you look for. Uh, my uh, 
my con man Ponzi schemer for Empire of Deception uh, didn't leave much of a trail for me, but he did uh, he did give a, a very detailed confession and was on a witness stand for hours explaining uh, his con. So that gave me uh, a really good base of firsthand material. Yeah, you want your you want to get from the mouth of your, uh, uh, from the mind of your uh, central character. There was uh, less of that with Crane, but I made the most of everything I could find. Because every once in a while he did, he did testify or spoke up or I would find a transcript or he gave interviews uh, as he was going through various court processes. Uh, in this particular case of the gentleman thief, uh, yeah, the first thing I look for is, is there enough there to bring the character to life for the reader? And in this case, I've got a, a gentleman jewel thief who not only has all of his exploits that he talks about in later life, uh, but actually came to regret uh, having wasted his life because he ultimately spends quite a bit of time in prison. And uh, so there's almost a redemption, or there is sort of a redemption angle on that. So again, it's uh, it's it's the first thing I think it's it's almost the uh, the deal breaker when uh, when you look at trying to do historical true crime. Uh, will there be enough material to make the main person whole? And of course, then you you want to any diary or memoir uh, by uh, police investigators or or victims or anyone else involved that will help support that so you so as much as possible you're telling the story in real time through the through the memories and recollections and and statements of the people involved now do you have a website of your own or a place that you like people to come and find out about your writing and books Absolutely, www.deanjobb.com. Uh, all my books are there. Um, the, uh, Of course, my publisher uh, for Empire, this book, and my next book, uh, Algonquin Books in New York, uh, they have a, a, a big web presence as well. And, uh, yeah, I, I've... Uh, um, there's been really good response to uh, to the Dr. Cream book, and uh, I keep it up to date. So I'd invite invite folks to uh, to take a look. So hey, you know, uh, during the pandemic, uh, the worst part of it in the last couple of years, all the craziness. How was it for you to write? It um, fortunately, uh, I did. Uh, I had all of my research for Cream done for the Doctor Cream book done, because I I did. Uh, I believe you have to go to the locations. And so I was in London twice. I was in Chicago for uh, two weeks. Uh, I went. I I followed Cream's uh, as a young man from Quebec City to Montreal to uh, to uh, the small community uh, in Quebec where he uh, met and ultimately murdered his his wife. Uh, so uh, that's that's a problem for, for me. Uh, I was mostly writing during the pandemic, right. um, but as I start on my new project, I will have some travel, and I, I am hopeful that as things open up, that'll uh, uh, I'll be able to do that. And it's it's not it's 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 partly because the records are there. Uh, amazingly, even a century ago, uh, a file from a century ago will probably be in the original courthouse where the trial was heard. Yeah. So uh, I want to see the locations, but I also want to go there. And you can hire researchers, and sometimes there's advantages to that if it's not a big part of the story. 
But as much as possible, I like to handle the documents. I like to uh, I like to see it all, and you pick up so many little uh, clues and informations and sense of a place, even what it was like a century ago, that you can then convey in your writing. So that actually uh, it kind of influences your feeling when you write the book. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it makes uh, I've got to make these places real to uh, to the reader. It helps if they're real to me. Um, things will have changed. Buildings will have disappeared. But it's I think it's really important to see what's left of that world um, as much as possible. And, uh, you know, there will be change, but I can compare to vintage photographs and make sure I'm, you know, things haven't, that I'm not describing things that weren't there. Um, but I do think if if the writer has that sense of place, that uh, roots in the story, uh, roots on the ground, I guess, for want of a better word. I think that, I hope that anyway comes through in the writing for the reader. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how that does. Did, but did, did the um, pandemic itself, I know a lot of writers, some of them felt stressed and so they were unable to write, while others, the stress made them, you know, even more um, excited about writing. Um, does it, Does that sort of, when weird things are going on and it's stressful around your life, does that sort of get in the way of writing? It, it, I can see how it could, depending on your circumstances. Um, I tend to be an early riser, and I write a lot in the mornings. And uh, we've here in Nova Scotia, we've gone through some lockdowns, not uh, not quite as many, I think, as other areas of North America. But that said, uh, we stayed close to home, and and actually, that uh, um, it was sort of the best of of hobbies and pastimes for me uh, to have that to concentrate on. So uh, I think uh, I think it was uh, you know it was it, it really helped with the pandemic, um, hmm. but if I had uh, been trying to research cream in the middle of this uh, with uh, the massive Scotland Yard file on his case on the other side of the Atlantic and unable to go, it would have been a problem. So I was I was just lucky in my timing. And you had that um, that uh, mass shooting there, didn't you? The guy that impersonated right. a cop. That's right. Yes, uh, uh, twenty-two people uh, killed. Uh, the worst um, mass shooting in Canadian history. Uh, yeah, just about an hour and a half drive from where I live. That's crazy stuff like that. Just it's just uh, you know a lot of pressure. I guess the world's just uh, people just go crazy. You know. And it does seem like the pandemic played some role in that. Uh, but that that case is. Um, is um, is subject of an inquiry that uh, we're still we seem to be still a quite a long ways away from uh, really uh, having a lot of the evidence produced to explain what happened there. Yeah, yeah, strange things in the world, boy, I'll tell you. Well, um, it's certainly been great talking to you, and and uh, you know it's been a pleasure having you here. Um, now the uh, a book we're talking about is the case of the murderous doctor. Cream, and this is the hunt for Victorian era serial killer. And our guest is the writer of that book, Dean Job. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Alan. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. 
have been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.